as we see with Lori Vallow and so many other cases similar to this one, it's just like this snowball that's rolling down the hill and it's growing and it's growing and it's growing. And silence is, is part of what helps that snowball get to such a large size that then nothing, nothing can be done or, or lives are lost. Welcome to the global phenomenon, surviving the survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime, and you are in for a treat today. Uh, of course, week three of the Lori Vallow Daybell trial is about to begin uh, come Tuesday. Uh, right now, as we all know, she's being housed in the Ada County Jail. Uh, very likely to spend the rest of her life behind bars. We had uh, three female ex-cons on the show yesterday talking about that, uh, and it doesn't seem like it could be a very pleasant future uh, for Lori Vallow Daybell if she is convicted of these heinous crimes. Of course, it is the trial of the so-called doomsday mom, the wildly twisted story of a seemingly loving mother a self-proclaimed devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who clearly veered way off of that religion's course and became involved in the deaths of as many as five people, including her own children. And uh, today, two of three of our guests, and possibly all three, know more about this case than just about anyone. You've probably seen Sins of Our Mother, the hit Netflix documentary. Well, Sky Borgman is in the house with glasses on her head. She is an American documentary film director and cinematographer, best known for her work in Sins of Our Mother uh, about the Lori Vallow Daybell story. She also directed the highly acclaimed film Abducted in Plain Sight and Girl in the Picture and a slew of other critically acclaimed true crime docs. Originally from Klamath Falls, Oregon, which I have visited She's also now a teacher, I believe, at UCLA. Uh, Lori Hellis, she's an author and a familiar face on this podcast and a retired criminal defense attorney. She calls Boise, Idaho home now, even though it snows in April. Uh, and she's there to help write her book titled Children of Darkness and Light, which is also the name of her YouTube channel. Her blog is called The Lori Vallow Story. And then we've got Boise lawyer Jessica Bublitz, who says it's usually not that snowy. It's supposed to be high desert, but not the case this year. She's a skilled litigator with more than 20 years of courtroom litigation experience. Jessica has tried numerous cases in both state and federal courts and is the first woman in Idaho to be named a top 100 trial lawyer by the National Trial Lawyers. Very quickly, please follow us on Facebook, Insta, Twitter. I put up all the show times at podcast sts you can also become a youtube member and you can also uh, support us on patreon and you can also uh, help support us against trolls like buzz off brad by leaving us five stars or a good review on all of our audio platforms without further ado uh welcome to one and all um sky how do you choose which films you're going to make well it's really the stories that completely confuse me, I think, are the stories I'm the most drawn to. Stories I hear about and I'm just confused at how it could happen, how somebody could do something like this to somebody else. And so that's what really drew me to this case uh, 
of Lori Vallow, Chad Daybell, Charles Vallow. I mean, all of these different scenarios and working together. And when I first started following the case was, was, was really in early or late 2019, early 2020. And we didn't know nearly as much then as we are learning now, or that we really came to know sort of in the, in the October when, when Chandler and Gilbert police released so many of the text messages and so much more stuff that really showed us motive to why she was doing what she was doing and showed a lot of communication. So um, I think really the stories that just pique my curiosity, those are the stories that are most interesting to me, stories that have a lot of layers, stories that aren't just about a crime, but stories that have a lot of elements of people healing from the crime, um, traumatized victims in a crime, people who you may not think are traumatized, who are traumatized, those, those ripples of people that, that exist, that the camera isn't pointed on. It's the, it's the people sort of in the families and behind the scenes. And those are the interesting stories to me. And uh, most of SGS Nation knows that sadly my father passed a few weeks ago. Uh, one of the things he used to say, he used to, he came uh, out of the Great Depression. He was born in 33, and uh, he used to only worry about money. And later in life, he only worried about time. And he asked people never to use the expression killing time in front of him. And he realized that time was a more precious commodity. And Sky, you're one of the busier people that uh, I must know because you're incredibly prolific and we'll get into that you had three big documentaries just in 2022 released on netflix do you have time to uh follow the actual day-to-day of this trial well thanks to Lori hellis who (laughs) can really condense down a lot of what's going on in the trial thanks to nate eaton who's constantly tweeting about what's happening in the trial we've got some fantastic journalists lawyers who are putting the information out there. And I have been able to follow what's happening in the trial, at least from, from afar. So I, I thank you, Lori, for doing all the hard work. And uh, Lori, what's it like to know that uh, every, the world is relying on you with no cameras? It's, uh, it's you, it's Gigi, and a few other uh, select people. But what's it feel like, Lori, to know that uh, people are relying on you for this information coming out of this trial? Well, it's important to get that information out. Uh, It's very distressing that the judge has limited so much the public's access to this trial. There is a lot of interest in it, and it, it, it is important that the public knows that their public servants are are doing their jobs and serving them, and that's the purpose of of having open courts. So, I I. I, I feel a great responsibility to report as accurately as I can um, because so few people are have access. Um, every day we get in a lottery at eight o'clock in the morning where we put our names in for um, 60 seats in the courtroom and another 125 or so overflow seats that are in a, a remote viewing room in the courthouse. So I, I feel like I'm very fortunate to be among that group and and I feel responsible to make sure that folks know what's going on. And uh, Jessica, with this uh, limited, you know, uh, camera deal, but there is obviously a lot of media exposure. Um, you know, I brought this up before we were covering the Alec Murdoch trial before this, and I could not find a South Carolina defense attorney that was not uh, not working. They were all. Uh, uh, they were all not working. I should say. They were all glued to their TVs, watching the Alec Murdoch trial. 
Um, are you finding um, that because of the camera limitations that people aren't necessarily as invested in this or when you're talking to fellow attorneys in Boise and, and regular people, um, are they are they following this because it's so high profile? The attorneys, the local people really aren't following this to the degree, uh, especially not com as compared to the Murdoch case. Um, there's limited information coming out, as you said, and I think there's limited impact because of that. As much as we can tweet the uh, what the witnesses are saying on the stand, you can't feel the impact the way you can if you're there. Um, the times that I've been in the feed room or in the courtroom have had an effect upon me as far as the testimony and what I'm listening to um, that is much more profound than when I'm simply reading about it uh, from the tweets, even from the best tweeters like uh, Lori. Um, it's, it's not the same. And it's unfortunate because I think you can't have the same kind of impact upon the community and you can't get the same sort of message across because people aren't going to go listen to that audio. And even if they were, it's not the same feeling as you get in real time when you're sitting there and you're listening to this testimony and these recorded conversations from the people involved that are so uh, jaw-dropping when, when, when you listen to it. Good point. Um, I mean, TV is only two-dimensional, I guess, or I don't know, one-dimension. I have no idea. But uh, it's not like either being there, uh, you know, uh, where you're actually experiencing it and on tv you get to experience it uh that way but um tweets no matter how good the tweeter is whether it's Lori or Gigi uh, from pretty lies and alibis it is tough uh mm -hmm. you know to put yourself inside that courtroom sometimes uh kathy writes i just finished watching sins of our mother what an excellent succinct program if all the crazy uh that is lvd and this case. Hi, everyone. Diamante says, hi, everyone. Um, to you, good Lori, now we'll circle back to the uh, star of this episode, Sky Borgman. Uh, does the good Lori see a clear defense strategy at this point? Good Lori. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Early on, they started calling me the good Lori to differentiate me from the bad Lori. Um, uh, no, I, I can't say that I do. Um, you know, sometimes as a defense attorney, the only real strategy is to be aggressive at poking holes into the into the uh, the prosecution's case and try to try to create that reasonable doubt. But I, I can't say that I've seen it. I, I have not seen the kind of impassioned defense that we saw in the Murdoch case. Um, uh, we, we haven't seen that. We've seen a fairly, to be kind, lackluster opening statement. Um, to me, an opening statement is, is meant to give the jury, to make the jury look for reasonable doubt, to, to, to help them understand and, and be on the lookout for reasonable doubt. And uh, that didn't happen. Uh, in at all in opening statements, and their cross examination has been pretty perfunctory. It's been sort of, you know, uh, they they bring up one or two things just to sort of say they did maybe, or to to sort of show that they're they're still awake, and then they don't have anything else. So, 
Um, I, I, it, I think the trial's going a lot faster than we expected that it would. Um, I, I, I would be shocked if this case goes the eight weeks that they had forecast. I would be surprised if it goes two more weeks. So that's an interesting forecast. Mm -hmm. Um, Jessica, since, uh, Lori brought it up and you're a defense attorney, I'll ask you kind of about this lackluster defense. Um, I mean, Jim Archibald was interviewed and I took the time to, uh, transcribe it after the you know second or third day of the trial and uh nate eaton from east idaho news is doing a fantastic job asked jim archibald uh how'd it go today jim and he answers you never know do you uh do you think Lori will take the stand i don't know we always make that decision at the end uh what do you want to say to the people of east idaho i hope they have better things to do than watch this trial uh not an overly enthusiastic uh gung-ho set of responses there from a guy that's supposed to be, you know, vigorously defending his client. Uh, would you agree with that? Right. Well, I originally thought when I heard his opening statement, why doesn't he um, harp a little more on the lack of ties between Lori herself and um, the conspiracies or the actions that were taken by, by everyone else. And now that I've heard the testimony of the last two days of court, I know why, because there is a lot actually tying her to uh, what actually happened to everybody involved. And there's a lot that shows that she was an active participant. So uh, maybe he, he knew more than I did, obviously. Um, and that's perhaps why he didn't uh, make those statements in his opening statement, because he knew that there was actually a lot to tie her uh, to everything that was going on. And I think what he would have been left with was a mental health defense. I think that's what he would have had to pursue. He would have had to give his notice that uh, he was trying to establish that these delusions that she was having were mental health based delusions and that she honestly believed that these uh, castings and this light and this dark and all of these things were actually for a good purpose due to her mental health diagnosis. And that's the only way that I think you could have even had some sort of uh, chance at successfully defending this case. And you never know what goes on behind the scenes. You don't know if it was Lori telling him she didn't want that to be the strategy. She doesn't want him to, to say anything about those things. Um, so it's very hard to come in and, and criticize what he's doing without knowing those conversations that they were having between the two of them or uh, what his experts were saying to him. Um, but he isn't left with a whole lot. I mean, those, those last two days of court last week were astonishing in, in how much they had to actually show that she was involved with all of these murders and that she had an incentive and intent and everything else, um, involved in, in, in seeing, um, the, these people murdered. And we'll, we'll dig a little deeper into that. Um, sins of our mother was, Riveting. I mean, I, I felt like I could have watched another 10 hours of that. Uh, same with abducted in plain sight. But uh, in doing my homework for this interview, Sky, I read that uh, you're not really looking to entertain uh, when you uh, produce and direct these documentaries. So what are you trying to do? Well, look, I think there is I think there is a certain level of entertainment um, that needs to be present in these documentaries to get people to watch them. But my hope in pretty much every story that I do is that I can carry people along with a story that is interesting and entertaining in order to 
open up little avenues or doorways or portals for the sake of this group into <laughs> places that you don't necessarily normally go, um, into things that are social issues, um, commentary on whatever the issues are that these stories hold, then I think that's what really is interesting to me, to use the crimes as kind of a spine or a narrative backbone to the stories that then give us these opportunities to see how people are responding and reacting to things that happen in the world and, and the places that we excel and the, and the places that we really don't excel as human beings. Um, Jennifer M. writes, good Lori, does Lori, bad Lori, show any effects that none of her family is there to support her? Do you think this is a small reality check for her, followed by, uh, good Lori, can you confirm that Lori's mother is in Boise? We were talking about this a little bit off camera. Uh, you believe you uh, heard that Colby Ryan might be in town as well as uh, Lori's mother. So uh, what, what's your take on the fact that the family has not been there to this point to support her, though? Um, uh, to this point, we have not seen anyone in the courtroom who is supporting Lori. Um, and we don't, we don't know what, we don't know whether, first of all, whether that is, um, their personal decisions, whether that is a, a defense strategy, we, we don't really know. But what we do know is that, um, one of my followers who uh, is has been following this case for a very long time and knows all the players um, confirmed for me that Janice Cox uh, was seen buying groceries downtown uh, across the street from the courthouse and was uh, seen uh, that they actually helped walked her back to her hotel room across the street from the courthouse. So um, I'm, I'm pretty confident that she's here. We've heard that Colby Ryan is here, although I didn't talk to anybody who could confirm that. Um, but we'd heard he was in town on Friday and they, they um, didn't get to him before the end of the day. So I, I, I am assuming that if Janice Cox is in town, she is in town with summer. We know that, um, we know that the prosecution put two uh, jail calls into evidence or late last week. One was a video conference call between Summer and Lori. One was a an audio call between Colby and Lori. So it would make sense that they're both here early this week to to go into those calls. Uh, Dill Pickle writes, oh my God, OMG, I've never made a live before. Happy to have you, Dill Pickle. Good name, too. Um, Sky, you were quoted, uh, I think, by E! Entertainment, um, kind of in a follow-up to this question that I asked you about uh, entertainment value or not. And you you said or elaborated uh, really about the, the possibility uh, that there was to prevent uh, these heinous crimes. And you were quoted as saying, I would hope that what people take away from this this film is that they can really see how many times Lori could have been stopped or could have been helped. There could have been some kind of intervention, I think, from many of the family members, from law enforcement, uh, from friends. Charles, of course, sounded the alarm to police before his death in 2019. And you said that Charles tried to speak up and nothing happened. Um, is this a, a cautionary tale? I mean, sadly, there's no end of uh, true crime stories in America. But, you know, what what do you want the greater public, you know, those who are turning 
the sins of our mother when they're they've had a stressful day they want to relax they put this on netflix but it has a greater purpose what is that look i think it is a cautionary tale and i think that i think that there are a few ways that people view a, a a series like Sins of Our Mother. I think a lot of people can come into it and going, that's so crazy. It's so off the wall. It's so fringe religious. I'm not religious. This could never happen to me. I think a lot of people could come in that way. But I also think a lot of people can see certain similarities in how things played out, can see how family members are affected, can see how they might be witness to something like this happening, maybe not to the degree of, of what allegedly happened, but to some degree, they get that little feeling in their gut and they're talking to a friend of theirs and the friend is talking about strange behavior with a spouse or or certain feelings towards children. And there's just that little, I don't know, that little niggle in your gut that says something's not right here. And I really would love for people to just listen to that, that something's not right. Because as we see with Lori Vallow and so many other cases similar to this one, it's just like this snowball that's rolling down the hill and it's growing and it's growing and it's growing. And silence is, is part of what helps that snowball get to such a large size that then nothing, nothing can be done or, or lives are lost. Um, Barbara Kern writes, my heart hurts for Lori's son, Colby. I pray he overcomes all this chaos and has a peaceful, happy life, praying for you and your family, Colby. Uh, Sky, what was your, uh, I mean, he, he was featured very prominently in Sins of Our Mother. Um, did you, two of you develop a relationship, um, you know, uh, outside of just the film? Do you stay in touch? Do you keep tabs on him? What was it like work, you know, having him in the movie? Yeah, I mean, Colby is a young man under impossible circumstances. And that's, I think it comes across in the film. And he's also, I mean, when this happened, he was, you know, 24 years old. He had a new wife, a new baby. He was really looking to sort of formulate his own family and sort of move through this world. And, and within the scope of a year, two years, three years, four years now, he's lost his entire family, the man he thought of as a father. His mother is most likely going to spend the rest of her life behind bars. His brother and sister are dead. And so he's, he's grappling with an incredible amount. And I think Colby was doing a lot of of good work to grapple with all of that but i think there's still a lot of work for him to do and i think he hasn't really i don't know if he's really let himself grieve over the loss that he's had because i feel like he's had to be so strong for himself and for his family and and quite honestly for the making of a documentary i mean he wants to present himself in a way and i and i think he is going to get through this but he's he's dealing with a lot and i think you use the word chaos and it just so aptly describes everything and, and i think it really aptly describes colby's world for the last four years uh jessica to you uh you know you deal with your clients on a daily basis um in this case uh that is so high profile uh the public has a tendency in the the court of public opinion, excuse me, has a tendency to obviously come down on uh, those who are accused like Lori and Chad, but also on their families like uh, Janice Cox or Colby Ryan. Um, as someone who defends uh, people like Lori Vallow, what do you say to people about their family members? Are they enablers or are they victims as well? 
They can be enablers depending upon the situation. Um, but I think in this case, there were a lot of victims um, around her. And um, I think that there were a lot of potential actual literal victims around her. Uh, that's one of the scariest parts about this case is these family members, I think, are probably people like Colby are probably realizing Lori could turn on a dime and decide somebody was a dark spirit. And at that point, they could be targeted. And so I'm sure that not only are they looking at her as a family member, they're looking at this, uh, these people who are involved in this with some measure of um, fear. Uh, so in, in this case, I don't think that what I'm seeing are a lot of enablers. Um, I think that what I'm seeing are a lot of victims around her and her family, just because of the nature of this case and the type of thing that she was involved in and this, this religious facet uh, and, and how it was kind of its own world, its own little subset of a much larger religious community. And I'm sure a lot of them are questioning things in a very difficult sense. And I don't want to get too much into the religious conversation because I don't know that I'm really it, uh, skilled enough in that area to really talk too much about it. Um, but I have the sense that that aspect of this case has probably really affected family members, church members, people of the community at large. Um, and that's just because of the testimony that I've heard so far. Uh, Julia Salinger writes, and uh, good Lori, this one I'll have you take. Uh, and there's another one right on the back end for you. Anyone know if the Daybell property was ever checked for spent casings at any point in time after Alex Cox attempted to shoot Tammy? Do we, do we know? You know, I believe it was. Um, we had a uh, we had a uh, deputy from Fremont County that was that testified earlier, and um, they were it, all of this was on their radar. It, it is not surprising, but I think people didn't realize uh, how much these agencies were talking to one another and how much this group was on really already on their radar. So I believe that uh, that the shooting incident involving Tammy was investigated, the possible shooting incident um, was in investigated fully, and there were several agencies involved. So I, I'm sure it was. They served multiple search warrants on that property, both outside and in. So. And uh, good, Lori. What about Jennifer M? Is is Janice going to testify? I don't think she's on a witness list as far as I know, but is there a chance that she gets up and testifies, maybe even on, on behalf of her daughter? It's possible. Um, I, I doubt it. I think she's here to support Summer. Uh, Ketchup, who's a friend of the show right here in South Florida, where I am, was not going to miss this one. Even if it's the end of the world, LOL, what's good, STS Nation and best guess, and where Ketchup lives, closer to Fort Lauderdale, I believe, it appears to look like the end of the world. They just had to shut down the airport again. It's been a nonstop rain. Uh, question for Sky from CM, from Kathy. While making sense of our mother, how much did you already know about the case? Did anything unexpected shock you? I mean... Everything. I think, yeah, I'm like, I didn't. <laughs> but look, as it was the way that this one played out, I, I mean, there was a lot that shocked me. And I think, 
I think I'd had a certain amount of information from police reports that we were able to get. And we'd even gotten to the point where we were feeling like we had the story for the most part, sort of the three episodes kind of edited out. And that's when, that's when the Chandler dump of information happened that had text messages and that had so many documents talking about the communications. And we actually went back in and, and started to re-edit because there was, I think these are numbers I'm kind of making up and pulling out of thin air, but I feel like we had 20% of the story and we could sort of kind of fill in the blanks of those story points before that happened. And then once that dump happened, I, I want to say we had 70 to 80% of the story. And now I'm feeling like the trial is filling in that remaining 20 or 30% that we still are like, how did we get from here to here? And I feel like they're able to, to fill in the details and all the elements to that. Are you hinting at the fact that there's going to be a, a sequel to Sins of Our Mother? Is that going to happen? I don't know. Look, anything is possible um, in terms of Lori Vallow and her story. Um, I I feel like most of the story has been told and we really wanted, the story that I wanted to tell really was how a family member sort of deals with this and how Colby dealt with losing his entire family. And and I feel like we told that story. I don't know. There are a couple little a little interesting moments here and there, but I do feel like I feel like Sins of Our Mother is probably complete, but but who knows? Anything can happen. And a, and a lot could happen knowing the past, uh, you know, so we'll, we'll see. Uh, Barty B, question for Ms. Bublitz. If Lori is convicted on just one of the conspiracy to murder charges, can she be sentenced to life without parole now that the death penalty is off the table in Idaho, and I see that little law library behind you, Jessica. It might come yeah. in handy right now. Yes, yes, she can. The conspiracy charges carry the same maximum penalty as if she were to commit the murder herself. Same with the aid and abet charges. If they find that she procured this or aided and abetted this as a principal, in those counts as well, any of those also carry the potential life sentence, yes. Uh, awesome questions from STS Nation tonight. Don't expect anything else. From Rather Be in Maui, question for Good Lori. And I'm going to make it a question for all three. I'll have them all, all three answer this, but Good Lori, you can start. What has surprised you most so far in the trial, Good Lori? I think what has surprised me the most have, has been what Jessica talked about earlier, and that is the uh, the way the prosecution has been able to connect though that the conspiracy. Um, one of the things that I, I had not heard before was that the evening that Tammy Daybell was shot at, um, Lori, they issued their alibi notice and said Lori was in Arizona. What they didn't say was that Lori was in Arizona with her little group of friends uh, performing a casting. And um, they were working hard on casting Tammy Daybell out of her body the night of that attempted shooting. And um, Lori went back after their ceremony was done and got in touch with Chad and said, did it work? And he told her that, um, mm -hmm. in fact, that Alex Cox had missed shooting Tammy Daybell and Lori went into a rage and started screaming and hollering that he was an idiot. He was a moron. And 
um, ended by by saying in what Zulema said was a very, very scary, angry tirade um, that he was an idiot and that he couldn't do anything right without someone helping him. And she was clearly talking about Alex Cox. So that connection was pretty stunning. Yeah, and the fact that uh, Alex said he'd be the fall guy and uh, he's no longer here. Um, Jessica, what has surprised you the most? To me, the most significant piece of evidence uh, that ha I've not seen spoken about much at all in the media, and I think, again, it's because there are not cameras in the courtroom, um, was the conversation between Melanie Gibb and Lori Vallow that was recorded by Melanie. And we've heard snippets of that conversation. Uh, but to me, the most interesting part of the conversation and the fascinating part of the conversation was that you could hear in real time Lori making the decision that somebody might be a dark spirit, in that case, Melanie Gibb. And you could hear the conversation where Melanie's talking about all of these. I mean, they were having this conversation in religious terms that they both seem to understand that I didn't understand all that well. But I wrote down and I actually typed out some of the lines that I thought were really uh, impactful. Um, Melanie Gibbs says at one point, we can rest the captures for our own vain glory. And then she accuses Lori of doing that. And Lori is very offended and says, you think I've done that? She's talking, she's accusing Lori of, of using scriptures or using her religion for her own vain glory. And she's doing that in religious terms. And then later in the conversation, when Lori realizes that Melanie is accusing her of these things or, or subtly suggesting that she's involved in her missing children or in these murders and things, she says, this, you know me, this doesn't sound like you. This sounds like you're dark. And that in real time is her making a decision that this might be a dark spirit who deserves to have something bad happen to them. And then you hear Chad chime in in the background. Yes, yeah, something to the effect of, yes, it sounds like you're dark. That was very significant to me because it was the first time I had heard Lori make that decision that somebody was dark. And it was the first time that I heard Lori make that decision based upon wanting someone uh, to suffer some repercussions, right? So to me, that's significant because it takes you out of that delusional realm. Um, and that had a real impact on, on me sitting there listening to it. Do you feel like um, Melanie Gibb uh, should have raised potentially a, a red flag earlier and there maybe there should have been more accountability on her part? And I know it's easy to yeah. Monday morning quarterback, but uh, your thoughts on that? I, I think so. And I think that she was worried about that. I think, I, I think that um, that circle of friends when it starts to occur to them what's going on and that the people that they are close to are doing these things uh, out of bad motivations um, are starting to wonder what is their culpability and they're starting to worry. Yeah, absolutely. And they should have raised those flags earlier. Because she even talks about JJ describing himself as Satan and hopping on kitchen counters and uh, she said yeah. it seemed innocent, but uh, obviously nothing was done about it. And now we know, uh, the outcome of that silence. So to Sky Borgman's point, uh, as they say in New York City, uh, after 9-11, if you see something, say something. That applies to uh, a lot of dysfunction and 
strange things going on uh, with potential neighbors or people that you know. Um, Marina in the south of Spain writes, what a beautiful name, Sky. So Sky, how did you get your name? Uh, well, it was, it was my mom while she was pregnant with me was reading a trashy romance novel and Owen's <laughs> name was Sky, and she thought it was pretty. And my dad was national park service and he wanted a natural name and something that couldn't be shortened into a nickname. And so they, they settled on Sky. I love it. I went to Brandeis <laughs> university with sunshine. I love that yeah. name. Um, Jennifer writes, Sins of Our Mother was directed perfectly. Sky, what has surprised you the most thus far? I think I think it's a lot of these telephone conversations that 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 we've been talking about. Um, but I think really to me, what was the most I don't know if it's shocking, but was the saddest to me was when the announcement of the DNA that they found on on the tools in Chad's garage. And and it just took me back to this very sad place, but also to this place. I remember while, while I was working on the film that I, I, it was so hard for me to kind of go, well, how could they possibly lie about this when it's such a bad lie, when they know they're going to get caught. And it seemed like this lying or this, you know, was just so sort of second nature for Lori specifically and, and Chad, I think to a lesser degree, but so many of these lies that they told would clearly be unfolded as a lie. And I think that, you know, just the the sort of disregard that they took in terms of sort of covering their path is something that's really, really disturbing to me. I think I'd feel better or be able to explain something a little bit more if they'd literally tried to cover their tracks better or they tried to put up a different front. But it just seemed like that never, never really happened. And the DNA on the on the tools in Chad's garage was 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 kind of the the, the period to that sentence. Don writes, uh, hi, SCS, mods and guests, bravo, what a lineup for a guest. No pressure here, Sky. I already asked you this. Will there be additional episodes of Sins of Our Mother as this case finishes up, followed by a more declarative statement? Would love to see more episodes, Sky. So, Sky, I'm uh, like a media news junkie. That's my world. I come from broadcast news. Um, How long did it take to shoot? in start to finish how many hours of raw footage oh it's a good question i don't know exactly how many hours of raw footage but but we started filming in i mean this is the thing like covid kind of came in and wreaked havoc on a lot of the production um but i remember i remember going up to rexburg in and around june of 2020 and it was such a just as the town there was such a sadness in the town. You know, this was after JJ and Tylee's remains had been found and Colby was up there and there was just such an incredible sadness. And it was the first time that, that we started filming and the first time that I'd met Colby in person, we talked a lot before that, but it was a really, really raw, very vulnerable time. And from that point on, we were filming and we were editing. And so let's see from the beginning of 20, most of 2020, 21, and then it came out in 22. So almost, almost three years of, of working on things. But again, COVID sort of came in and, and, and sidetracked us a little bit. And then when the new information came out, we had to kind of go back and incorporate that into the cut. But these things, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like they take, they take a while to make these, to make these 
series to make these documentaries. And so to do another episode now, like I feel like the way that it's playing out in real time is so fascinating and so interesting. And then to be able to do a follow-up episode and to do it justice would probably take another year. And so I don't know that there's that much more that you could glean from it that you're not getting from, from sort of following things in real time now. Yeah. And I'm not sure people fully realize how much work it is to put together something. And if it's done well, it looks so simple and easy, but trust me, it's not one of my uh, many jobs. And one of my first jobs was as an associate producer on a show for CNBC when any biography was doing so well, CNBC wanted to steal the idea and it was called in profile. And I spent two weeks with Muhammad Ali and two weeks with Clint Eastwood uh, for two separate shows. But our, the producer, she always wanted for every one hour of cable, uh, for a one hour cable show, she wanted a hundred hours of raw footage. And then it's fun and it's great to get. But then me, the uh, little scrub, had to sit there and transcribe and look at everything and get her the sound bites that she needed. And it is a tremendous amount of work to go back and look at all that raw footage. I also work, not to make this a Joel show, but this was fascinating. I worked for Michael Moore for a summer. Uh, not the greatest guy in the world, but uh, very successful at what he does. Another documentary filmmaker. And he would shoot literally thousands of hours and he would bring it in to a guy named Kurt. Kurt was his editor. It was kind of like Kramer from Seinfeld. And they had a belligerent relationship. And Kurt lived in the edit bay. He just lived in there. And Michael Moore would just give him all this raw footage, and he would start to put it together. And he'd go from 1,000 hours down to eight hours, and Michael would watch it, down to six hours. And it was really fascinating to watch how it was done. And usually when they got it to about an hour and a half where it needed to be, Michael Moore would tell him he hated the whole thing, and that's when uh, all hell would break loose. So it was fun. It was entertaining, and you learn. But the bottom line, it's a very long, tedious, difficult uh, prospect. But people have ideas for you. Barbara says, maybe Sky can make a movie on how people are so easily deceived by cult leaders, especially the players in the Daybell case. One thing you've been obviously interested in, a lot of your documentaries featured children. Why is that, Sky? Because I think that I think it's our responsibility as adults to sort of protect the children and 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 put stories out there about about all of the terrible things that happen to children because they don't they're not able to protect themselves and and I think it's our responsibility to talk about it and and to to tell these stories that are kind of hard to hear sometimes but I, I really I really respond to some of these stories to children and to to young adults who are who are trying to make it through the best they can and that horrible things happen to them and it's it's typically not, at least I haven't told a story yet about, you know, child on child violence, but it's usually adult to children violence. That's just so, in my mind, despicable. And uh, Sky, without being humble and immodest, are, are you constantly being contacted by the Netflixes of the world now? And are they saying, Sky, please make us another movie? Or do you find yourself in a position where you still have to pitch to them and still have to prove that you've got a viable uh, concept and, uh, and a good storyline? I mean, all of it's a little bit true. I think that there stories come from many different directions. Um, 
individuals reach out to me through email and, and talk to me about stories that they have that they feel would make a good documentary. There are production companies coming to me and there's Netflix sometimes coming to me, but I'm still, I'm still developing stories out, thinking of different ideas, thinking about stories that I think aren't getting out into the sort of zeitgeist of the world that are important to get out in the zeitgeist of the world. And I'm still, I'm still pitching stories around weekly, I would say. It never ends. It never ends. Um, both good Lori and Jessica. I'll call you good Jessica too, Jessica. Um, Allison Umpleby says, can someone answer, would it take one juror to believe that Lori's meltdown was for the one juror to believe it was Lori's first time seeing the kids' mutilated bodies? So I think the question is, you know, is Lori trying to uh, create the perception that she had no idea this was going on and this was really the first time and she was so shocked by it that she had this courtroom meltdown and I'll ask you guys about the meltdown as well. But Lori, what's your take on this question? Well, I think if a juror were convinced that Lori was distraught over having seen the pictures of her children, perhaps, um, because it only takes one jury to one juror to hold out. But uh, I I would have to say that um, in I was in the courtroom and and my observation was that she was somewhat agitated, maybe be the best word uh, before lunch. She was sort of had her arms folded and kind of had her head down. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that she was hysterical, emotional. She wasn't crying. She wasn't sobbing. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think everyone in the courtroom found those images difficult. Um, you know, I'm sure Jessica's in the same position I am. We've seen a lot of pretty graphic photos over the years. And so um, it wasn't by any means the worst I had seen, but uh, it, I'm sure looking at the jury, they were very moved by it. And folks who were in the gallery were very moved by it. Um, I wondered whether it was, it had more to do with the family and the gallery's reactions than it did to what Lori saw. Um Larry, Larry Woodcock was clearly upset about the images. He was at one point sort of bent over and quietly sobbing. And, you know, people were near him trying to comfort him and, and support him. And uh, it made me wonder how much of her reaction had more to do with what was going on in the courtroom than really her own internal reaction to 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 the images have you had a chance to speak to uh larry out there oh sure i've i've talked to him just about every day yeah and uh did he express to you how difficult it was to see the i mean we knew, we obviously know it was but did he did he express it to you yeah. oh absolutely i'm i mean um i i, I want to say first of all that i think that this has taken a terrible toll on him he's he, he, you can see in the time that I have known him that physically his his health is diminished by it, and 
Um, I, I know that that day was particularly difficult. And at times he was literally bent over sobbing. So I, I mean, and I have had a chance to go over and give him a hug and tell him that we're all here for him, but just like everybody else in the courtroom has. So, um, you know, I, I, it's very clear that it has had a, a profound impact on him. And uh, Lori, Kat Teal here says, if Melanie knew what happened to JJ that weekend, why wouldn't Lori have said so on the phone call back in December? Any uh, thoughts on that? Hmm. Um, there's another there. There is another recorded phone call, and I don't know whether it will come in or not. But it was a phone call between Melanie Gibb and a person who she had gotten to know on Facebook over her over Melanie's book. And um, during that phone call, she says to the person she's talking to, well, the, the kids were both, um, Lori said the kids were both dark and we all know what happens to dark spirits. So, I mean, I think there was a, a certainly an awareness on Melanie Gibbs' part that something untoward was going on and that whenever somebody was considered a, a dark spirit, it was likely something bad was going to happen to them. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I think that, that Melanie Gibbs certainly had her suspicions. I'm not convinced that she and David Warwick knew what was happening the night they were there with Lori and, and which was the last night JJ was seen alive. And uh, Jessica to you, uh, Lori was just talking about some of these really graphic photos when detective Ray Hermosillo was on the stand from uh, the Rexburg, Idaho PD. Um, clearly that, you know, that, that, that impacts um, the courtroom writ large, but also the jurors uh, to what extent and is it possible, and this is kind of a question for tomorrow night's show, but I wanted to get a sneak peek from you. Is it possible that it's already uh, game over uh, for Lori Valadebel in terms of the jurors having made up their mind? I don't think that they have completely made up their mind yet. My, my, in my experience with jurors, they are probably leaning very heavily towards conviction at this point. Now that they've heard all the testimony of the last uh, uh, couple of days about her involvement um, and some of the more uh, beliefs that she had, you know, they didn't start out the trial with that. They started out the trial with some of the more emotional parts of the case with regard to the photos that you're talking about. That was earlier in the trial. And then they tied Lori in after that. And so I think at this point, they're probably still in the surprised, horrified, and upset at what they're hearing phase, and not so much in the, are we tying all this together and thinking about conviction phase. Um, they're still watching, they're still absorbing. Do they think, are they tying this evidence in? Yes, but in my experience, until you're closer to the conclusion of the case, um, the jury hasn't what I think they don't really make up their mind, uh, per se at this point in the trial. 
Uh, Christina Spencer writes, good evening from Boise, Idaho. I'll be in the courtroom tomorrow for the second time. Well, if you're a lawyer or a journalist or someone who wants to be on the show, hit us up, survivingthesurvivor at gmail.com. I'm always looking for people who are insiders inside that courtroom. Hello from windy Chicago, which is always windy. Uh, another big picture question for you, Sky. Um, th these are more of kind of my uh, uh, questions that I'm fascinated by. And one of them is the intrigue just in general with true crime. Uh, if you look at podcasting, true crime is amongst the most popular genres. You look at Netflix documentaries, they're among the most successful documentaries. Why? Why this fascination, this obsession uh, with true crime? I think it really, and look, I think it, it's not unfair to say that, that the majority of the people watching these crimes, I think it skews, you know, majority, probably 60 to 70% female um, who are watching these true crime, this true crime content. And I think it goes back to the fact that we are wanting to protect ourselves. We're wanting to arm ourselves with as much information as we can, with as much evidence as we can, with as many sort of different experiences that we can get from watching them on TV rather than experiencing them ourselves. And so that we can find ways to kind of be more attuned to the things that people do to sort of prevent ourselves from being taken by scam artists, to, to prevent ourselves from falling into situations with men or women that we shouldn't be involved in. So I think it really is just a quest to, to kind of protect and arm ourselves against the world out there. And uh, speaking to that uh, obsessive uh, behavior, uh, Heidi Ruth, if I'm saying that correctly, unfortunately, I listen to the audio all night. Since I'm in the Eastern time zone, I don't even get to begin until 8 p.m. It is really unfair to the public that's interested in this case, but uh, you are spending the time. So uh, kudos uh, to you for uh, putting in that uh, investment to public court, and uh, you should be able to hear that uh, that audio. Um Something else that you said that was interesting to me, because uh, I picked up on this too, Sky, um, and uh, that is about interviewees um, and uh, them wanting to be listened to. Uh, you were quoted as saying that most people imagine that as soon as the cameras roll, the interviewee would close off emotionally. But the opposite is usually true. It's a moment of listening, and I don't feel that people experience being listened to that often uh listening is one of the uh dying art forms in our world uh you turn on cable tv everyone's screaming over each other so how important is it when those cameras roll uh for these people to actually have someone listening to them intently it's everything i think it's absolutely everything um i I, I mean, there have been interviews that I've done that people have launched into and I haven't asked them a question for an hour and they just talk and talk and talk and talk. And, and a lot of it is, is them just, I feel sort of carrying the story around and not having the opportunity to really talk about it without, without interruption or without somebody that they're telling the story to not interrupting and having their own story that they kind of not necessarily one up them with, but this similar or parallel experience that they then offer to the story, which takes it in a different direction. So in my mind, I think the most, most important element to being a good interviewer is to be a good listener. Uh, these are some quotes from Lori Vallow. 
Uh, one of them, I no longer need to sleep very much because I'm woken up constantly by angels giving me instructions on things that I can do to help further the Father's work. The time is now. The Lord is gathering his people. Uh, she considers herself to be a, quote, resurrected being uh, and a God. Uh, Jessica, when people in the courtroom uh, hear this, uh, what does it do for Lori's case? I mean, do they immediately say she's a wacky or just can some people relate on some level to this feeling that, you know, she's connected to this divinity somehow? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, you know, the prosecution's case as they laid out in their opening statement is that they don't believe that she really, that Lori Vallow really truly held these beliefs and was acting out of sincerity. Their strategy has been that this was for sex, power, and money. And in their jury instructions, it says as part of the conspiracy that she used religion as a means to an end to commit the murders, that the religion was used to justify the murders. And I've been very skeptical of that strategy from the beginning of the case, but I'm starting to see why they see it that way. And I'm starting to see what it is that they saw in all this evidence that led them to that conclusion. And while I think that the public, uh, there, there are many people who can relate to such a powerful uh, connection to a higher power or so powerful connection to their religious beliefs um, that, that one could, you know, uh, in, in some way lose, lose sense of, of reality. Um, that's not, that's apparently not what this case is actually about. And that's the most interesting thing to me because I could see this case being about that. And I could understand that Lori was tying in or, or getting caught up in these delusions and was losing it. She's been committed twice. She's got all these issues. Um, I could see that as a road. But what's really interesting is that that's apparently not the road that they're taking. They see this as a means to an end and that this isn't someone caught up in their religious beliefs. And I think they're getting there. <laughs> and so that's going to be the most interesting part of this trial is what do they have supporting that? Well, uh, go ahead. I, uh, sorry, but I, I just have to chime in here. Um, the the other complicating factor to, I think, the prosecution and the way that they have formed their trial strategy is that most of them are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I, I don't believe that any of them would come at this case from any other direction then this is about money sex and power um because to do anything else would validate her aberrant beliefs i think you've got to think about the jury members too the juries are also are also probably predominantly lds and so are they not well uh, not not that we can tell here's the difference 96% of the population in Rexburg and in Madison County are members of the LDS church. 
in Boise, the population is more along the line of 16%, wow. maybe lower than that. That's the number I'd seen. So I think it's less likely that we have a jury panel that that skews towards church membership. But I, I cannot help but look at the trial strategy and say that has to be a factor. When mm-hmm. everybody on the prosecution team are members of the church, with the possible exception of Rachel Smith, I don't know her affiliation. She's, she's the um, person they brought in from Missouri. Um, so I, I don't know about her. And, and the defense team are both members as well. So uh, as well as the judge, as far as I know, Chad Daybell's attorney, John Pryor, is the only one that is n- not somehow of- associated with the church. Uh, Janice Peace writes, um, by the way, Sky, uh, the fact that this uh, case is not being televised, would that impact uh, or inhibit your ability to, to make another part of sins of our mother. I mean, it definitely inhibits, it, it, it inhibits the ability to make it, but it doesn't make it impossible. I mean, you know, the, the audio recordings, um, alone are incredibly interesting. The phone calls that have come out that we've had some of them, I've heard some of them before others I haven't heard before. So there's still a lot of material there that, um, that you can find ways, but it's, it would be easier certainly if, if there were video, if there were archived video recordings of the trial. And, uh, and by the way, I read that that video, uh, is only a live feed. It is not being kept for archival purposes. So that will not exist either. But, um, Janice Peace writes, might, might as well put Lori on the stand because so far I'm not seeing anything either. She might just show she does have serious issues. Uh, Sky, do you think there's any chance that happens? And if it did, then there might be a sins of our mother part two, possibly. I mean, if we could see her on the stand. But <laughs> I, I just, I, I don't think there's a chance she's going to take the stand. Lori? I, yeah. Lori, is she taking the stand or no? I don't think so. Although I do have a pound of Starbucks coffee riding on it. <laughs> Jessica, how about you? <laughs> on a, yes on or a no? bet with somebody who thinks she will. I don't think she will. Yeah. Jessica? I don't think she will either unless she, for some reason, she insists upon it herself. Um. Uh, yeah, she's not a client that you put on the stand typically. No, um, but I just want to say to Lori Hellis, that's a fascinating point that you just made about the fact that because they are LDS, they are going for the sex, power, and money angle in this. And I wondered that myself. I actually thought, is that is that an angle that they took because for them it, it's it's somehow all because they've skated over the, the religious connection to all of this. And it's so heavy. And when you're actually listening to the testimony and listening to the people involved, that's such an important part of this case. And yet they've just sort of glossed over it. Like it doesn't really exist. And it's all just about these other motives. And that's, that's interesting that you say that because you have to wonder how much of, of um, their strategy is because otherwise like you say, it go, going into that would, would somehow threaten um, the larger bubble, right? Um, 
and it, and it is a bubble. This is the, it, it is interesting because when you're when you're watching this, especially being an attorney from Boise, and it, this is not an LDS community. Boise has grown in population quite a lot, and the population that we're getting is coming from California, <laughs> Oregon, other places. It's it's not coming from Utah, um, and so the eastern uh, area of of Idaho is very isolated culturally, mm-hmm. and they've brought over, uh, like Lori Hellis was saying, the the defense attorneys, the prosecutor, the judge, who are all in this little bubble. And I can see the disconnect in how they communicate that they're, they're used to communicating in their own little world. It's not going to connect with the jury in the way that they're used to um, because they, are, they, they aren't all that familiar with uh, Boise and, and, and um, people who don't exactly think exactly like them. Uh, Linda Kay writes, could Lori or someone demonstrate, and this is a little macabre right here, but uh, this is a great example of not having cameras in the courtroom uh, and not a ton of sketches either. So could Lori demonstrate how JJ's arms were folded? Were they folded tight like a mummy or were his little arms folded in prayer? Um, is that something that you can Yeah, sure. They, they were just folded across as if you had laid your hands across your amp abdomen they were just laid across his his body um i i think the thing that was not to get too deeply into it, what but when we saw the preliminary hearing where detective hermosillo described the scene when the children were found it, it, it he said the amount of duct tape that was used was so over the top. It was, it was to the point where it was remarkable. Um, but, but seeing that is, you really do understand why he thought it was so strange. The, his arms are, are really just in front of his body as if he had his arms across his abdomen, but it, it, he is they're wound with duct tape from elbow to elbow, uh, both hands. And, and the body is almost, there's so much duct tape, he almost looks like he's wearing a spacesuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, his arms and his hands and, and uh, around the, the head is wrapped in layers of, of duct tape. And uh, it, it makes you wonder why someone would, would do that. I mean, it, it is... Detective Hermosillo saw it as an unusual way to to wrap a body. So, I'm curious too. Did they go into, or is there any reason from a legal standpoint to go into how Tylee and JJ's remains were so differently disposed of? Because there's quite a bit of violence in 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 how Tylee's remains were found, and and. Is there a reason to go into that or is there just not? Well, I don't know because I don't think we've quite gotten there yet. But I, my sort of what I read into it is that there was this evolving idea in all these castings they were doing of how to get a spirit out of a body. So as they went along, they were sort of in Zulema's words, learning and 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 trying to figure out how to get these demons out of these bodies. And it 
it, at one point she said they decided that in order to keep another dark spirit from coming into the body as soon as you cast one out the way to do that was to destroy the body and including um dismembering the body burning it dismembering it and so it made me wonder whether that was sort of proof of their evolving ideas about how to get rid of these dark spirits. But I don't think there's any argument that Tylee had a difficult relationship with her mother. And I don't think that there it's any secret that she was not happy with the fact that her mother had gotten involved with Chad Daybell. Yeah. And there are a few more things I've got to get to with Sky. Barbara uh, writes, and Jessica Bublitz, this is more up your alley here. Did anyone notice that every time uh, Melanie Gibb testified about something that made her uncomfortable, she cleared her throat? I viewed her throat clearing as a defense mechanism to her lies. Um, I think this is interesting because the jurors are watching absolutely everything, right? And uh they could potentially pick up on something as small or as large as this, right, Jessica? Yes, that's the type of thing juries are looking at. They're when it comes to witnesses, they're looking at credibility and they're looking at um, empathy and things like that. So this is um, something that the jury is definitely going to be uh, observing themselves. Now, I would ask the viewer. I mean, I find that that to be an interesting comment because I guess I would wonder where that was coming from, and if they feel that she wasn't credible in her testimony as a whole, um, and if so, why did they feel that uh, Melanie Gibb was um, hiding her her true involvement, her true knowledge, um, and that she was being strategic and aligning herself with the prosecution at this point, or did she feel that she was betraying Lori and they're seeing some sort of um, alliance there that still exists? I, I would I would wonder what they're what they're picking up exactly because that's the sort of thing that the jury is going to be looking for. Uh, Donald Donna Donald writes, uh, does it bother you, Sky, that the judge asked every juror had he or she she seen the sins of our mother documentary, a test of sorts, or do you take that as a badge of honor during jury questioning? They were asking a lot of the jurors if they saw your movie. I I don't know that I take it either way. I think it's I think it's good information that that you know to have during a voir dire if somebody has has watched the film or not. Um, but I also feel like it's equally as valid to say, have you watched any sort of newscast or anything covering this trial? I think what what my series does more than anything else is it takes you know three years of information and sort of collapses it down into three hours and so you just you don't have to follow the story for the length of time um so i don't know i don't know if i consider it one way or the other i think it's just good information um lj reminding everyone to do what my daughter reminds everyone please hit that like button it helps get the algorithm chugging so please do that if you can uh marina uh Lori Hellis. Good Lori. Why aren't people like Melanie Gibb and Zulema facing any charges? Would that be possible? These women were praying for Charles to have an accident. Cray cray. Well, praying that someone has an accident isn't against law. <laughs> or there'd be a lot of people who'd be locked up for having prayed for somebody to have an accident. Um, I, I think... I, I understand people's 
feeling that there should be some accountability for these people who encouraged this behavior and at least tacitly didn't didn't come out and say this is wrong and you should not be behaving like this but i'm not sure that there was a, an abundance of evidence to prove that they were ever directly involved yes they were peripherally involved we still don't know the reason why Zulema has uh, it has immunity in this case, and I'm not sure it really came out in her testimony, at least so far, as to why she was granted immunity. Um, Sky, to you, because uh, you kind of got a little deeper into this. Uh, what is the deal between Alex? Cox and Lori Vallow in terms of their relationship, because this is something my mother's a social worker. She's a licensed therapist. She said to me yesterday, it might not be incestuous in the true sense of the word, but it definitely crossed lines. How do you see that relationship? Because it is certainly not normal. It's not normal there. And, and I don't, I agree. I don't know that it was incestuous, but, but from all accounts that I, I sort of talk to people there was a lot of flirtation. There was inappropriate touching behaviors, and and I don't I don't know if I can really define their relationship necessarily. But it was very close. It was verging on sexual. There were definitely sexual elements between the two of them. But more than that, I do feel that their relationship was definitely one where Alex would do just about anything that Lori asked him to do. And that's, that's the critical thing here is that I, I mean, in one of the tapes, you know, I mean, Alex even says, you know, that he's, he's thought of as, as her henchman. And, and so I do feel like that relationship was very well cemented and, and that he did do a lot of things that he would not have done had Lori not asked him to do it. Do you, do you question the medical examiner's ruling that he died of natural causes? Of course I question it. <laughs> I question it all the time. There's just no evidence. You know, I mean, the timing of it, everything about it is so suspicious. Um, and, you know, I went down a rabbit hole for a long time trying to figure out ways that it could, that, that he could have died the way he did with like, could he have had like a needle prick between his toes? I mean, there were so many ways that I was like, how do you, how do you do, how do you kill someone like this without there being any evidence? And there just isn't any. Uh, Izzy Day, what people aren't mentioning are the lifelong patterns Lori exhibited, writing bad checks, uh, fictitious disorder and other bad acts, documented proof of her fanaticism from way back. Were these all red flag sky that uh, should have been addressed in some way earlier on? I mean, I think there, I think red flags. I don't know that anybody could have said, okay, she wrote a bad check. She, she's going to kill her kids. I mean, I don't think one equates to the other, but I do think that this idea that I think has been perpetuated is that Lori was this loving mother her entire life until she met Chad Daybell. And then she just turned into this other woman. I think she had narcissistic, narcissistic behaviors from the beginning. I think she really enjoyed being in the limelight, being the center of attention, being the one that everybody looked at. I don't think she was as good of a mother as, as she claims or that some other people sort of claim that she was. And maybe they're rethinking that themselves. But I think that this was a long journey for Lori. And I think she was constantly looking for more and trying to be 
more. And I think this confluence of events when she met Chad and she started reading his books and she was looking at these fringe ideas to the LDS religion just started building from that point in around, you know, 2017, 18, 19. And that's when, that's when she sort of turned this corner and, and became a little bit more fanatic about her beliefs. Um, a question from Aries uh, and good Lori, I'll throw this to you. Will Lori, this has come up a lot, which is why I bring it up here. Will Lori try to skip justice by committing suicide rather than serving her life sentence if found guilty or shaking your head? No, you don't think so. How come? Uh, Well, uh, my personal opinion is that Lori is absolutely a true believer. She believes that this is only a bump in the road, that that this is only a, a, a getting in the way of her mission to lead the 144,000. And I think that she honestly believes that at some point, the end of times is going to come, the earthquake's going to happen, the walls of the prison are going to fall down, and she's going to be released, just like happened in the Bible. Um, I, I believe that she is still firmly in her delusion and that, no, she she believes that she has a mission and a purpose. Uh, Roxanne A, and then we'll wrap it up. Question for Sky: uh, Did you get to ask Colby if he ever feared his mother killing him? Great documentary. I don't think he ever did, really. I think it was more hindsight sort of looking back that that you can get sort of crystal clear vision of things. But I think really what it was for Colby was just this incredible sadness at losing his family and not really a fear of what his mother or his uncle for that matter could or couldn't have done to him. Jessica Bublitz has become a big friend of the show. The first woman in Idaho to be named a top 100 trial lawyer by the national trial lawyers. And if you've been listening to her, you know why um, I'm kind of fixated on this courtroom meltdown from last week, Jessica. Uh, obviously, she had a, a very hard time. Lori did looking at these photos. But do you think, because I'm a cynic, um, that there was anything more uh, with that, that they were setting something up potentially? Um, I know there's no uh, insanity defense, but was there something else afoot with that meltdown or was that just an honest to goodness meltdown <coughs> after seeing all that? I'm torn on that. I'm torn on that. I think I, I see uh, what Lori Hellis is saying about her still being completely fixed in her delusions. <coughs> my first instinct when I saw it was that someone, if they were that fixed in their delusions, if it cracked, if you got through just a little bit at all, and it was their own children of Kylie and JJ, and that if if a little crack of doubt had seeped through, that maybe that triggered something like that. Um, or it could all be theater because her whole life has been theater. And she's very good at being put on. She's put on in certain situations her whole life. She has convinced people and manipulated people in a many, many different circumstances. So I'm I'm 50-50 on that one. I think it could have been she's actually uh, talking to her attorneys and they say, you know, it would be really good if you just show that this was really hard for you, you know, at this point in time. Um, or it could be that that something, something got into the subconscious somehow. 
um, and she pushed it back out. I don't know. Lori Hellis knows a lot. I don't know if she knows the answer to that. She's an author and a retired criminal defense attorney. She moved to Boise, Idaho to help write her book titled Children of Darkness and Light, which is also the name of her YouTube channel, which you should check out right after this. And her blog is called The Lori Vallow Story. Rhonda writes, ISDS Nation, good Lori. Do you really think this can be wrapped up uh, in two weeks? Uh, I don't think it'll be wrapped up in two weeks, but I think it will be wrapped up in two additional weeks. So I would be very surprised if this goes on beyond four to five weeks. Total. And uh, KCL, who's a friend of the show, has a tag on question for you. What I most want to see is testimony, testimony about how Lori participated in the murders of her kids, as reported by Nate Eaton in January. Uh, that still seems to be. I don't know, sort of the uh, the missing link here is connecting uh, direct evidence to her. Uh, is that problematic, uh, good Lori? And will we see uh, this testimony related to that? Well, I always say circumstantial evidence is like a, a chain and you, you have to be able to connect the links of the chain. And so it, it's going to be up to the prosecution to connect everything so that the jury can get from point A to point B. I don't think they're there yet, I, but I, I certainly think that that um, they're moving in that direction. My understanding is that they do not know the exact cause of death for Tylee because of the condition of her remains, and that they are not 100% certain where these murders took place. Um, the first indication we had that they might know that was the notice of alibi they filed saying that the murders took place in, in Alex Cox's apartment while Lori was in her own apartment. But uh, they have not produced any evidence at this point to, to back that up. And uh, Margie chiming in, always enjoy your insights. And these guests are great. Thank you. Thank you to Margie. Uh, Sky Borgman, if you didn't know her before, well, you knew her documentary before. She is an American documentary film director and cinematographer, best known for her work on Sins of Our Mother about the Lori Vallow Daybell story. She also directed the highly acclaimed film Abducted in Plain Sight and Girl in the Picture and a slew of other critically acclaimed true crime documentaries. She hails from Klamath Falls, Oregon, a beautiful place, and teaches at UCLA. USC, um, sorry, it's USC. That kill me if I didn't correct you. Oh, USC, <laughs> USC. Sorry, that's a big rivalry. That's a big mistake. So it's USC. You never heard UCLA. Never. Um, <laughs> Sky to you. Um, how do you stay so prolific? I mean, you had three documentaries that were all big hits just in 2022. How can you possibly do that? A lot of caffeine. Mm -hmm. It's it's a lot. I'm, I'm a I am a coffee drinker big time. Um, I think it's it's a matter it's a matter of really setting boundaries, taking the weekends off as much as I can. I can't always do it, but um, I have a great support system. I've got an incredible husband. I've got a dog that that gives me so much joy, and um, and really, it is a sense that 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 these projects do do some good, and that that helps that helps push me forward. Hear that a dog. It's always the dogs. Dogs are a woman's best friend. Um, I lost my beloved Mabel Rose at 17, but I still have Ethel. Um, dogs help. 
Don't forget that. Don't forget that. And uh, final question. What's next? What's the next movie? Can you share? Can you break news on our podcast? I wish I could. I can't. I can't break any news. I've got. I've got two. One uh, is an anthology series, and one is another three-part limited series that will be probably out in twenty-four. So it's going to be a while. Well, at least promise us you'll come back when that's uh, when that's out. Absolutely, I'd love to. And a final comment here: the Netflix doc was excellent. There's been a gazillion of those comments. No surprise there. Quick programming note, tomorrow night we've got attorney Joshua Ritter and Ann Bremner, who's a very well-known, very astute lawyer uh, out of this uh, Palo Alto area. She's going to be here, and we are going to discuss, is it already over? Is the trial over, and there's still weeks left to go? Uh, Our guests will weigh in on that. And then, of course, this Friday... Great Scott, it's your True Crime Phil, live 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And this woman will be back live with us this coming Sunday night. Until then, love you, America. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and... The chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.